It's been said that luck is the intersection of preparation and opportunity. Welcome to the Australian Hunting Backcountry podcast, where we will focus on all things hunting in the backcountry, not just in Australia, but everywhere that backcountry hunting is possible. My name is Tobias, and if you're a hunter with no backpacking experience, or even an expert, I would like you to join me as we explore gear, places, and technologies hear lived experiences, different perspectives, and share the passion that people have for a hard-earned backpack hunt. I appreciate you being here with me as I try to increase the knowledge that will bring us better luck in the backcountry. All right. Welcome to this episode of Australian Hunting Backcountry, and... This evening, I'm uh, very honoured to be joined by uh, a name that might be familiar to quite a few of you, and particularly uh, to quite a few of you that have been hunting for a number of years, uh, that might be around my sort of vintage. Chris Boone. Chris, welcome. Thanks for uh, for joining me. No worries. Thanks, Tobias. Thanks for getting me on. <laughs> so, Chris, we were having a bit of a chat before we started the recording, and um I asked you the question about uh, um, how long you've been doing this for and, and um, your previous, uh, I guess, uh, publications in the, in the hunting industry, uh, hunting industry slash um, um, exposure media. And I remember years ago um, reading articles that were written by Chris Boone in, in a number of the uh, deer and hunting magazines. Yeah, you uh, you were able to confirm that that was in fact you, um, that I was thinking of the right person. Um, so yeah, for me, Chris, um, I, I've been a, a follower of you for many years. Read um, many of your articles. Obviously, admired the, the hunting that you've you've done and been able to do. Um, so that's for me. That's why it's it's a, a personal pleasure to actually have you on the the podcast and and to be talking with you. No worries. I've been around for a little while, I guess, and before social media. So that was when we we wrote things. We wrote letters to editors. We wrote articles, and we did it a little different to social media. Mm. Yeah. And we were sort of discussing a little bit about social media as well and, and uh, how it can be a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, so th- for you, this, I guess, transition from... Um, hunting and and having to produce articles that were in print media into social media how how has that happened for you and and as this as social media dragged chris boone kicking and screaming into the the 2020s or uh, has it been a natural sort of step for you uh i would say it's been a natural step it's uh i don't mind social media because it's very image based and I like my photography. Mm-hmm. So that makes that bit very easy. But I, I love writing as well. So mm-hmm. I don't get to write as much, but I certainly get to put up as many photos and images that I've captured. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is one of the advantages of social media is that you can, you can share a, a, you know, the old saying, a picture's worth a thousand words. So you can you can share your story through um, through a number of images. Yeah, mm. uh, I mean, in a magazine you can pick two and that's it. When you do social media, you can spread out the fifty you've got and put all fifty up 
as you wish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. And you, you kind of compel people to, to look at them then. it's They're going to scroll through, and if they miss it in the first scroll, social media algorithm put it through two days later. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So let's go back to the, to the beginning for you. How did um, you get involved in, in hunting? Hunting as itself? Hunting to start with, yeah. Uh, from fishing, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I was probably eight, ten years old, fishing all the time, fishing anything, kitchen sink, I reckon I would have fished in. <laughs> uh, catch tadpoles. Mm. And, uh, yeah, from there, rabbits, foxes, the slow, the slow climb. Mm-hmm. The pinnacle, of course, moving to deer hunting, and it's never grown much more than that. It's pretty much samba dedication. Yep. yep. Okay. And did you have uh, a mentor or a parent that sort of introduced you to it? Uh, to hunting? Not really. I had a grandfather who grew up on the farm. I grew up farm kids, grandkids growing there, uh, rabbits. Um, so that was my hunting. Um, and then the deer hunting uh, came from uh, Mike Harrison, Ken Pierce. Uh, I used to fish a lot in that area. They became like parents. Mm-hmm. And so they were my mentors in the deer hunting. They mentored me from small game hunting to big game hunting. And I've never left the Samba game. Yeah, right. Wow, that, that's, uh, there's a couple of impressive mentors for you to have. You were very lucky to, to uh, get that. I was in. lucky. Yeah. Still lucky. Yeah, both of them. I still get to speak to Ken every now and again. So, yep. And then the, the progression from hunting into backpack hunting, because that seems to be sort of where your passion kind of lies more in the, in the hunting realm. Yeah. Uh, backpack hunting came, that was where it actually started. I didn't do fringe deer. I went straight from um, speaking to those guys telling me you go to the high country, you get a pack and you go out and you go and find them. And uh, that's what I did. Um, I got maps, topographical maps, got stuck right into them. Uh, My mother was a backpacker at the time and she said, oh, yeah, when we backpack, we see them here, we see them there. So I, you know, circle this, circle that, and then, yeah, put the pack on and took a wide, big, big step out there by yourself. And that's where it all started. Yeah. yeah, never looked back from that. Yeah, no, it uh, has a tendency to be addictive, doesn't it? Yes, uh, punishes the wallet, the social life, <laughs> everything, but uh, the brain. The brain just benefits from it. Just it, it's a mental health game. It loves it. Yeah, you mentioned the topographical maps. Um, I've I've got a collection of topo maps still in my cupboard you know and they're, they're probably two inches thick the the stack of them um because before google earth that was what we had we used to have to get a topographical map for an area pour over it look at contour lines look at you know north facing slopes all, all that sort of thing you know and um and then i hope- think people could still do it i'm just, it, i go out in the bush and even on the recent trip, I've got a topo map and I'm reading it. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking at my GPS and GPS is not even turned on. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at this topo map 
following the contours, looking for a place to camp where there's water. I couldn't imagine doing it with just a GPS. Mm. I'd be printing out pages and pages of maps off Google Earth if I did, and I'd take that. But I would have to have something tangible in my hands that I can calculate where I'm going to be and how far it's going to walk to it. No, that, that's, I think that's a, uh, an aspect and a skill in the, in the hunting scene that has, is slowly fading. Um, people are becoming more and more reliant on GPSs and the, and the convenience of them. And, and even mobile phones, you know, you can download satellite imagery onto your phone before you go away and, and have that uh, at the ready. But um, I, I was in scouts and, uh, and ventures and so forth for many years and did a lot of backpacking through that. So back then, one of the, the very first skills that we had to learn and in fact, you probably earned a badge for it. Was you know navigating on a map with a, a compass. So you um, start in cubs. You start learning compass work in cubs, yeah. and then everything else from that adventure is, as you mentioned, rovers. Everything else is is just topo map. Hmm. Yeah. The um, <clears throat> the obvious advantage of of the satellite imagery now is that it, uh, it kind of gives you a little bit more of an insight into what the uh, vegetation is going to be like in the area and um, because quite often I know you know being being a couple of states away we would or I would have to plan a trip and I would have to have uh, plan A, plan B, plan C and plan D usually because um, you, you drive into an area and and start hiking in and realize that where you wanted to go was too thick or it wasn't what you were hoping it was going to be so Back out you'd come, drive to plan B, give that a go. Um, yeah, so that was, so even nowadays, I, I still, even with satellite imagery, I still find myself doing that where I have a couple of different options before I head down on a trip. Oh, definitely. Before I go, you, you always, you look at a map and study it, but you, you're going to Google, you're going to check it out, you're going to 3D it, you're going to pan, you're going to, and you're going to see what's happened because the top of map, as you say, vegetation's not on there. And mm. whatever is on there, it was done in 1984 or 1992 or whatever it was. Mm. So it's not up to date. And most of the Google imagery was in a couple of, is within a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And if not, it'll show you what's burnt, what hasn't burnt, what's regrowth. Mm. At least you can see it. Mm. So outside of hunting, uh, and you're obviously um, still doing a bit of fishing as well from your uh, your social media um, outside of hunting who who's Chris Boone uh, nobody <laughs> outside of hunting he is just hunting uh, I just have a normal nine to five job work at Beretta Australia mm-hmm. in the firearms industry and that's it that's really it uh, I've got a partner we live in the country uh, three dogs, which is going to become more, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love outdoor work. So weekends are devoted to, you know, splitting wood, chopping trees, cleaning gutters, mowing lawns. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the outdoors because of my static stationary nine to five job. And just live for hunting. Yeah. It's, it is actually me through and through this been marriages come and gone you know it's it doesn't change i um it's probably a negative definitely a negative for me 
that I am that passionate and that dedicated to hunting. Small example, uh, when I was uh, recovering from one of the medical operations, I spent five months living in the bush, mm -hmm. getting more and more information on you know, wildlife, deer, birds, just everything. I took it all in. I, I, I don't not. I'm very hard to sit still and do nothing. Yep. It's, it's got to be something more I can see or learn, take a photo of. I'm just overly dedicated to samba hunting mm, mm. in particular. Yep. Yep. And one of the other things we spoke about as well before was um, some of your earlier articles. Um, you were hunting with uh, a very young child on your back as well. That was uh, a way of sharing it with my son. He was a, he started at three uh, hunting with me. He doesn't hunt anymore, unfortunately. But kids grow up; they do different things. Mm. Uh, and also a way of allowing me to hunt as well. And because I am so dedicated to the hunting, I, I needed a way rather than giving him back, you know, to the grandparents all the time. I needed to, you know, do it with him. Mm. So we travelled around. We hunted. Uh, the old uh, six before he was five, we hunted all six species before he was five years old. That old, I was in wild, published in wild deer. Mm -hmm. That's that's me using uh, or coping with uh, with modern society is to take your child and let them experience everything that you got to experience as a child. Yeah, show them what it's all about. I don't expect him to take it up in the rest of his life, mm. I understand that it's more than likely he's going to go full circle. And then when he, you know, gets married and needs to go out and explore the world, he'll come back to dad and say, Hey dad, you remember when you say, yeah, sure. No worries. We'll mm. go out whenever you want. Mm. You know, when you need a break from the real world, he'll probably take up fishing or something outdoors, riding bikes. Just. Yep. Yep. And uh, I think I've got, I've got three children myself and uh, my youngest um, is my son, and he's he's very much starting to to get involved in in hunting. Al always has been interested, and but now he's just turned fourteen, so he's really uh, at that age and size now where he's quite capable uh, of you know carrying, uh, holding a rifle properly, uh, shooting it uh, adequately, and and also carrying a backpack. So he's he's already started. You know, hitting me up about when when we're going to do go and do a hunt, but but in terms of being a parent, I, I think that um, and you're probably the same mindset from what you've said there is that that generational thing is is something else that is we we've got to look forward to. So it's not only bringing our son into it, but then the potential of bringing our grandchildren into it as well. Because society is different changes with every generation but this generation of my children uh, you know mid early 20s they've moved into a lot of computer generated entertainment mm. so yeah sure when they were younger and that's you know they came with me because that's what dad took them to do and then they went into you know ele electronic media entertains them hours on end and yeah, they they'll come out of that, but 
their children. They mm. grow up. Yeah. I didn't grow up and do the same hobbies my father did, so that's you know can't expect it for every child. No, that um, uh, yeah, the, the social media and and access to it and so forth um, is a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, you know, we we need to, we need our children to be prepared for the future, but at the same time, uh, it kind of um, grates on me anyway, uh, seeing you know my children sitting there on their phone for hours on end and scrolling and being being far too connected to it. Yep, and it starts at a very early age. Primary school, they start being connected to it. So mm. I wasn't going to fight it. More if I fought it, then they probably would resent it. So I just left it. Mm. Yep. Let them come back to it when they need to, yep. because they they will need to reconnect with the real world when maybe when they got married and maybe when they've got their own kids or maybe when they've got the first mortgage who knows it'll it'll happen that they'll need to reconnect mm. so coming back to the um the backpack hunting then when you started out obviously you had you had those great mentors there so you you i suggest you probably had a bit of a head start um on that that journey um, but in terms of when you started that journey, what were some of the, the lessons, I guess, that you kind of learnt the hard way? Because we spoke about before that sometimes the only way you can learn something is a mistake by actually making the mistake and then realising that you were wrong. So what are some of those um, more significant lessons that you learnt at the start? Uh, definitely uh, waterproofing. Yep. It's if something says it's waterproof, test it. Mm -hmm. And if you're not going to test it, put it in something waterproof, like a waterproof bag. That's something I learned very early on because you pack a pack, and whether it was doing it for scouts or venturers or backpack hunting, you pack it, and it's essential certain items stay dry, like sleeping bags. Um, when I started, I think we we're all using Holofill as the most premium product. Once Holofield got wet, that was it was wet. Yeah. And learned very early on that wet is not comfortable, wet is uncomfortable, mm -hmm. wet is not pleasant at all. Mm. You start resenting the whole situation. So yeah, don't don't let sleeping bags get wet. Don't let uh, you know, spare socks, don't let them get wet. It's just I keep things separated in my pack in dry bags. Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, pretty much one of the the most useful things I've done because water bladders break, rain, torrential rain like we're having in Victoria, it it gets it seeps in everywhere. You yep. can be in a dry tent and I don't know the nightmare of the dripping sound inside the tent mm. that just means that stuff's getting wet that shouldn't be getting wet. Yep, yep. You wake up in the morning and there's a pool of water in the in the side of your tent. There's, somehow got in there but it's there yeah it's there and it, it can really put a, a wet sleeping bag or wet clothing that you have to wear till it's dry can really put a downer on a trip mm. yeah and in terms of gear what are some of the the items that you probably started with uh, as a as an entry level and then realized that you needed to upgrade those fairly quickly like for example i i always refer to the three b's boots backpack and bedding 
and I always say that you know if you can if you can get yourself good quality uh, items in those three categories, they are probably the the foundation stones of of a good hunt. If you're comfortable when you're walking in, comfortable when you're hunting, and comfortable when you're sleeping and, and recovering at night, then you'll overcome a lot of the other obstacles. So. For you, along those sort of lines, what what would you categorise there? I'd have to stay with your three Bs. That's it's pretty. They're the three, I guess the the corners of the pyramid. They're really priority base things. Boots very important. These days, I hunt with actually quite high boots. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows me to pack in and pack out at the highest lacing, mm-hmm. and when I'm actually hunting, I just only lace them up to sneaker height mm. because I find that it's too stiff and too noisy when you hunt with tall boots. But walking in when you've got a weight on your back and you don't want to roll your ankle and you walk in or walk out, it's just nothing worse. Mm. So I use quite high boots. Uh, and, the, and the bedding, yeah, critical, critical. Because if you're cold and wet, you can undress and hop into your sleeping bag mm. and you'll warm up. And it's not such a bad thing anymore, being cold and wet. And a backpack, well, you're not going to go anywhere without carrying your gear in and in and in and out. So, yeah, I I would prioritise those three. Mm -hmm. People say tents and so on. You can be comfortable under a tarp. Mm. That's uh, I've camped many times under a fly tarp. Even when I started, I camped under uh, mattress bags. Uh, You used to put your your queen bed inside a giant bag. I used to camp inside those bags right yep just take them out and you know boat go bush and use the queen size mattress bag as a waterproof encompassment yep just those those simple pleasures i look back on and think geez that was good and that didn't cost me anything yeah like cost me 20 bucks to go to the mattress store and buy you know five mattress bags and yeah use them Mm, okay i've never heard of that one before so that's interesting it's it's uh, when you start you you look at it's all about weight saving. Yeah. So you, I didn't carry a tent. I just carried a good sleeping bag and a big waterproof cover. Mm. Yeah. 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 And how would you would you just sort of sleep in that like a, a bivy sack or would you actually kind of pitch yeah. it a little bit? I would pitch the top half. Uh, there's probably photos published somewhere but i would pitch the top half and use it like a like a bivy like crawl into it just make sure it wasn't facing which way uh, well the cover was facing which way the weather was coming in from mm-hmm. and yeah. yeah yeah all right all right that's that's a good tip that one yeah good uh <laughs> yeah. good entry level can, uh you item can buy lightweight flies now really cheap but yeah. back then a tarp was heavy and it was big and they were you only thing you would pretty much get was a giant canvas one or a giant blue one really overly comfortable yeah yeah yeah, a lot of the early sil nylon too it was it was far less than waterproof sometimes you were you know it was it was wetter underneath the tarp than it was on the outside yeah so yeah but we're talking now now we're showing a bit of age and we're talking 25 30 years ago bit different to it is what it is now a lot of the goods manufactured now quite cheap mm. yeah now technology's uh been an advantage um 
in this in this space anyway. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, hiking and ultralight hiking um, products, you know, cross over into the hunting realm, so they don't have to be actually specifically produced by a, a hunting company for hunting as such. They can, you know, be a, a backpacking item or um, uh, you know a, a non-hunting related company. Yeah. So apart from those three important, very important, one of the things that I've found over the years, which actually you don't buy, is fitness level. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that I enjoy more than actually hunting and at the end of it, doing a seriously big day of hiking in or hunting, not being sore at the end of it, not having blisters, knowing you put, I still put in 100%, but I'm not, I'm not sore at the end of the day. I'm not going to wake up stiff and wonder if I'm going to go out again tomorrow. I know I'm going to wake up fine and I'll be out tomorrow to mm. put in just as much hard work. Mm. It's, it's one of the things you don't get to buy, but it's, it's, it makes a hunt so much more fun. Yeah. It's, uh, I guess the, the similarity would be to, to know you're going to work so hard and then tomorrow you're going to end up with a hangover and every day that you're there, you're going to end up stiff and sore than wake up the next day. It's imagine being able to avoid it just makes the whole trip so much. Yeah. So much more pleasurable. Yeah. Yep. No, you're right. I know I have, uh, I, I don't think I've ever done a trip where I've thought to myself, I trained enough for this. They'll always kind of, yeah, come either come out of a trip or, or gotten to, to a certain point in it and thought to myself, I wish I had done more. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you combine that with those three, those three very important items, you're going to have an awesome time. Mm. You, 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 you've, pretty much cut out all your major issues by about 80%. There's only 20% that can upset you, which might be your, your ammo doesn't go off or your scope gets knocked out or, but everything else, or, you know, you can run out of water or food, but everything else you've got under control. Mm. Mm. You've done the best prep you can do. Mm. So what is, what does a trip look like for you now? Because you, you recently posted on, on your social media about your return to backpack hunting. And, and I'll circle back around to uh, the reason why you've, you've returned recently. But for you now, uh, what does is, what is backpack hunting involve? What sort of uh, things are you looking for, looking to achieve? Um, what are your, you know, the areas you're going to? Obviously, you don't have to give me your honey holes. I'll get them off you <laughs> later right. on when the recording stops. Yep. But, That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what's what's uh, what's a hunt a for success, you now? Successful hunt for me now is to to go in to an area back backpack in, um, uh, and carry as much gear as I think, plus an extra day's worth of food, mm-hmm. um, and to push myself into say an an area that I don't think other people would like to have ventured. So I will, I will go in and I will set up a main camp, you know, and a lot of people might go, oh, but you're on the top of a ridge and you're going to have to get water. Well, to me, that's a small price to be, to be able to be where I am 
if I have to walk back 500 metres and back again with 10 litres of water, I'll, I'll do that because it gives me the freedom to sit on top of the ridge. I don't mind carrying 10 litres of water if I have to do it once a day or once every two days. Yeah. Uh, and then to hunt from that camp into spots I don't think people will want to have walked before. They might have gone down there because an animal's gone down there, but they won't have actually actively said, I want to go down 400 metres and then come back up 400 metres later in the day. Because those areas don't get the pressure. And that's, you have to be ready to do the extra hard work to get to the spots that don't have the pressure. Mm -hmm. It's like your favourite fishing hole. You've got to walk the extra... 50 metres that everybody else hasn't walked on that river to get to the, the fishing hole. you got to you can do it mm-hmm. and you'll you'll be rewarded. It may not happen on the first trip, but you get rewarded those trips yeah. when you push it just that little bit further because you're a little bit more prepared to do it, whether it be emotionally or physically, you're prepared to take that extra step. Yep. I guess that's it. That's that's what the trip is, and then, then enjoy that that bit of the trip. And yeah, pack out. That's mm. I always enjoy packing out and being not as refreshed as when I went in, but you know, not completely exhausted and have to take a day off the next day mm. from work. I like being able to just come out, know I've put in a hundred percent, and then go to work. Mm-hmm. So to achieve that, to go to those areas where you believe people aren't prepared to, obviously, going to down in Victoria when the gates are closed, that that kind of increases that area because, you know, people people are, majority of people are probably only prepared to walk in a, a certain number of kilometres um, from the gate. Um, so for you, are you? How does that planning start? Do you? You obviously have a, a, a knowledge base already of areas, um, but in terms of providing to advice for people that don't um, that live locally and have have that sort of boots on the ground experience, what would you suggest that they start looking at? Are you talking about the country they should be looking at? Yeah. So where where does that where would you suggest that planning should start for them? Okay, so it really depends on what sort of hunting they want to do too because when you look at a topographical map and and where you should start, it depends if you want to be doing stalking Mm -hmm. uh, or you want to be doing cross-gully shooting. Uh, For the stalking people, they'll be looking for mildly undulating and say in the September-October time of the year, they'll be looking uh, at the snow plains where the deer have come up from the deep valleys after the snow have melted, there's fresh pick on the ground. They'll come up and they'll start feeding on the edges of the snow plains in the little valleys just on the sides. So you'll be looking at a topo map and you'll be looking for something um, probably 10 k's or more from where vehicle access can be made. Mm-hmm. And then you, you start stepping into some good stalking country. Yep. Yeah. All right. If you're looking at cross country, you're looking at close cross gully shooting. You're looking at close, close contour lines, really close, mm. and be prepared to uh, 
you know, bust up a couple of antlers on your way or, you know, drop down and have to find them. Yeah. But you, you have to dedicate, and some people talk about dedicating a day. I've done where you shoot one and then you end up sleeping with that one after you found it to come back out the next night. It's mm. That's how it works. Mm. Mm. Yep. So for you, is your preferred method stalking or long range? Uh, not quite long range. I do like gully jumping. So I like to drop down and then contour around and look from one gully to the next, just work my way. Yep. That allows me to do a bit of stalking and a bit of shooting at maybe 300, 350 metres. Yeah, okay. Right. So looking uh, then someone planning a trip, you're sort of saying you want to be looking about anywhere from about 10 k's onwards as a minimum um, into the country and then identifying uh, the, the topographical sort of features that you're after to, to, to suit your style of hunting. Yeah, because... Um... I can tell people, oh, they should go down whether it's really bluffy and so on and so forth. But that person might be carrying a forty-five seventy and want to shoot animals, you know, in in thicker or yep. slow walking, whereas that's not going to be suited. Mm. So, and the ten k's, it, it's a, it's more of a, it sort of weeds out the high pressure that you get from day trippers. Yeah, yeah. A day tripper is unlikely to pull up at a, a closed gate and walk any more than 10 k's and then 10 k's back mm -hmm. so it just avoids that that extra hunting pressure it doesn't guarantee success it just increases your chances yeah yep no. okay and do you would you say that you take um to do the style of hunting that you like to do and to access those remote areas would you say that you take risks that um potentially I guess could could be dangerous or construed as dangerous. Like, are there are there parts of the country that you're going to access and uh, steep faces and that sort of thing that um, to to get to that area, or do you try and sort of keep yourself reasonably? I don't I don't think it's any more risk than I'm comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that. There's a couple of times you get bluffed out, but I don't push myself past the bluff. I realise that I'm bluffed and I go backwards because I'm not upset. To, to get to that point to get to that point means there's less likely other people have been there mm. so uh, even on the most recent trip i passed up a big deer because i couldn't see a way to get to him if i did shoot him mm -hmm. so only on the last day i figured around a way if you go around the back and come back over the spur and you don't get buffed out but you know i know that for next time yeah I don't take any more risks. Uh, these days, I do carry one of those uh, SMS messenger, satellite messenger things. Mm -hmm. uh, not that it's so critical, but I do drop into deep valleys uh, that doesn't that don't have phone reception. Yeah. Whereas up the tops, where you set up camp, you or you you're a stalker and you want to do the snow plains, you you'll find a fair amount of reception. Mm. Uh, in the, in the Alpine National Park. Mm, mm. Yeah, on my last trip earlier this year, I was actually, we went into an area and I was, I was actually upset that there was phone service in there um, because then the, the temptation to, and it was good phone service too, obviously we were getting a signal off the ski fields, um, but then there was temptation to, you know, log into the social media and, and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it's a double-edged sword because you can communicate with 
uh, yeah, you know, kids or family back home, um, send them an occasional message and, and so forth. But then there's that temptation there to be distracted by it. Yeah, which you have to, to enjoy the trip, it's best avoided. Mm. Just avoid the social media. Mm. But yeah, yeah that's that uh, that increasing amount of coverage that happens more and more and hearing reports you know the big phone companies are going to give us almost 100 percent coverage it's going to be a, a challenge to get to the wilderness part of the hunting once that happens mm, yeah look yeah as you said you get upset about it and i think that's part of the reason we go is so that we don't have that yep yeah uh, but yeah, like I said, in terms of double-edged sword, you know, it, it obviously increases um, people's safety exponentially by having phone coverage. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess it comes down to discipline, then, doesn't it, to put your phone onto airplane mode and and uh, switch off and be comfortable that uh, you know the world is gonna gonna carry on without you. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think on the most recent trip, I didn't even take a camera. I just used my phone for all the all the images yeah it, it's phone cameras are so good these days that it's hard to justify um taking a, a proper camera if you're going for a hunt if you're going for photographing that's different mm. going for a hunt you're carrying the rifle to do any other other images so yeah yeah i spoke to a um a professional photographer recently as well as part of the podcast and um he said exactly the same sort of thing he said these days a phone, an adapter, and your spotting scope, you can get equally as good long-range images and, and videos than what you could do with a you know, very expensive camera. So, If I wasn't carrying a rifle, yeah, sure, I'd carry a digital SLR. But carrying a rifle, you're here for a hunt. You're not here to take pictures. Yeah, yeah. In terms of your, of your gear then and... and um, Working for Beretta, I'm going to suggest, probably has some advantages when it comes to the firearm side of things. Um, but in terms of other gear, um, if, you're, uh, if you're allowed to, I don't know whether uh, there might be a conflict there with, with your employer, but are you allowed to, um, to discuss some of the brands and, and gear that you do use? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a set uh, or... A, conflicted in any way is what I use. Uh, Beretta supply my rifle and my optic on top of the rifle mm -hmm. and the ammunition. Apart from that, I go for right. whatever I choose. All right. Well, let's start with that one then. So what's your uh, what's your rifle and, and calibre and uh, scope choice? Yeah, I've got a real love for the, the new Beretta BRX, which is a straight pull. Uh, I've got it in 300 Win Mag. I've had it for about two years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I prefer the 300 Win Mag over the other calibers because it, it, it allows me to shoot 500 if required. Yep. Uh, the scope is also a, a Steiner Predator 8 with a ballistic turret. It can, which I've set up to shoot to 500. Um, and when everybody does their part, you know, we can put two shots within four inches or 10 centimetres at 500 metres. Mm -hmm. It's there if I need it. Yep. Uh, and I... I really like that gun. It's, you know, I'm not saying it because I'm a Beretta fan. I really like it. I've got a Browning, which I used prior to that, which I love just as much. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yep. And there, I think from memory, you're on your um, 
Instagram, you had a bipod attached to the the rifle as well. Yep. Yeah. I I'm big fan of bipods. It's not any special brand uh, that I'm aware of, uh, but I'm big fan of having it because I'd rather have it and not have it than what is it? Have it and not need not it. use it. Than, yeah. Yeah, then because a lot of the a lot of the hunting I do is steep country, yep. and finding a rest on a rock, is, or take your pack off, do all these things. It's just so much easier for me to flip down the legs and and shoot. And they're actually really long legs, so I can shoot across a hill, you know, five hundred meters from one gully ridge to the next gully ridge, mm. without having to chalk it up. So I can shoot lying down on a really steep angle. Yeah, yep. I don't shoot running game, so that sort of helps me keep things level. Yeah, yeah. Ideally, uh, I mean, if you can shoot, particularly with Samba deer, because they do seem to have this um, superhuman powers to absorb uh, heavy calibers when they're alert. Uh, so ideally, if you can shoot them while they're not alert uh, and unaware of you, and and you know, naturally feeding or whatever, um, that always seems to be um, uh, more of an advantage than shooting something that that is running or, or alerted. I agree. Yeah, so that's why. Mm. Yeah. But apart from that, I mean, I when it comes to the hunting part, critical parts are, are glass. I find glass very important. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I use uh, Swarovski 15s on a tripod. Mm-hmm. And I don't carry them when I'm going down gullies, but I have them at camp. That's why I pitch it a high, such a high altitude, you know, 1,500 metres plus. So I can look into these deep valleys and see where I'm going to go. I can see deer. I can see uh, game trails. I can pick all these things up before I'm down there knowing that the deer are there. Mm-hmm. Rub, I can see rub trees, you know, find a wallow. All sorts of stuff with with good quality optics and 15s are they I've carried them for almost 15 years now probably yep. maybe more and people say oh but they're so heavy but they save me so much yeah yeah they 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 really do mm-hmm. yep and the tripod that you're using is there a particular brand you you're fond of there and uh, it's a Swarovski tripod the carbon fiber. Where you can cut weight, you do, yeah, and that's that's where I can. But I wouldn't go to ultra light carbon because then it shakes, mm. and you've got to pay the price. It's a bit bulkier. It actually isn't any heavier, but it's a bit bulkier and solid. Uh, but it allows even when the cold wind is blowing, you're a bit chilly, and the wind's blowing everything else about. The tripod's solid. I can still look through it. Yeah. Yeah, without a, a stable platform, you kind of lose that dis- that advantage that you've got of having the high-powered optics. So there's mm-hmm. a there's a real compromise there, and then you've got to work out what what weight is going to uh, and design is going to give you that stability. Yeah, because you find a lot of these ultra-light uh, objects that you can purchase for hunting, whether it's a rifle or a bipod, tripod, um, they shake. Mm-hmm. You, they're not as stable as the bulkier item, but depends where you want to go and how much you want to use it. Yeah, yeah. And obviously it seems to be proportionate that the lighter you go in an object, the higher the cost 
goes at the same proportion rate. Also true. Yeah. Also true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so do you carry? Say, yeah. Sorry. Uh, and then the other binos I carry around my neck are Swarovski ten by uh, EL ranges. So yeah. All right. That was that was going to be my next question. So. Um, yeah, the second binos are range finding Swaros. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Had those for many years. I had before those. I had uh, Leica range finders. I just found once you have range finders in binoculars, it's hard to go back. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the, the Leica uh, range finding binos, and um, it it beats carrying a separate range finder and so forth. I know there's a yeah. there's a small sacrifice in the in the optical quality. Of them um, but yeah I, I think it outweighs it yeah certainly and the, you, your eyes after so many years of hunting this they can't really discern between old uh, or not older but uh, the lenses in a in a range minor versus the lenses in the premium it's mm. it's I think it's over 35 you, your eyes start to deteriorate and I'm well past that age so yeah yep uh, tell me about it. I've I've had to start wearing glasses in the last few years to go hunting because my uh, my long range eyesight has deteriorated. In fact, anything over six foot now is is getting blurry for me. So uh, I'm I'm very annoyed about that. But um, I I have investigated uh, some laser surgery, but I've got to wait for my eyes to settle down for the the script to stabilise first. Yeah. Yeah, it, it happens. <laughs> Not just eyes, knees, hips. Yeah. There we go. So if you're carrying the 15-power binos, do you carry a spotting scope as well or that they replace them? They replace the spotting scope. I did many years ago carry spotting scope and binos and long-range binos. I found what I can do with the long-range binos with both eyes open mm. is so much easier than searching a hillside with spotting scope. Mm. Um, searching with a single lens eye closed and sometimes they were 45 degree angled or whatever it was so hard to pick up mm. anything mm. so that's why the 15s yep yep i had a pair of um 15 power vortex binos years ago um and same thing i used to take them away as an alternative to the, the spotting scope um, but then i made the decision to upgrade to the um range finding binos and and i needed a bit of extra cash so i had to sell those and um keep the spotting scope but uh yeah i, I would dearly love to go back to a, a set of 15 or 18 power binos as an alternative it, for me it's easier to sit on a hill face and glass for sometimes you know eight hours it's easier to do with binoculars than it is to do with a single lens spotting scope oh absolutely yeah it's uh, the Having trying to have one eye open and one eye closed all the time is uh, gets gets very annoying very quickly. Yeah. Gets tiring, and when you're doing it for such long periods, uh, because you've dedicated yourself a week or ten days to backpack in somewhere, you you are going to want to sit in certain spots for longer periods of time. Mm. So yeah, I have seen some guys actually carrying a, a pirate patch with them, and so they mm -hmm. keep one eye covered um and that way then they're not you know squinting and so forth that seems yep. to seems to help work. a little bit yeah so that might be something i'll try next time
So uh, for this segment, Friends of the Podcast, I am joined by uh, Josh Price from Alpine Accuracy. So Josh, tell us a bit about Alpine Accuracy and um, uh, what it is that you're actually uh, producing there. Yeah, no worries, mate. Uh, yeah, so um, Alpine Accuracy was uh, a little side business, I guess you could call it, that um, popped up during COVID. Um, like a lot of others, I, I guess that have happened in during that period of time and we're all stuck at home. Um, but for me, it was more about um, just trying to make a shooting rest for myself um, that, that suited me, I guess you could say, um, as I found like a lot that I was buying wasn't really um, cutting the mustard for what I was after. Um, so yeah, so I, I got stuck into that, making them at home, trying to work out what was what I wanted to use and seeing how light I can make make them before they uh, started losing um, performance, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the end of it, I thought I'd made one that was pretty good. Um, started showing a few people and whatnot, and then yeah, it, it took off from there really. And um, yeah, what's it now? Two years later, we're still we're still doing it. So, what sort of uh, products do you have uh, available for people? And and what would the second part of the question will be? What would be the um, the real application for them? So, predominantly, it's um, shooting rests. Um, don't really venture too far as of yet. We do make them in an ultralight film. So the ultralight film that um, that I've been using over the last couple of years um, is the reason why I got into making them. Um, but I've got a 1.75 litre um, rest down to about 250 grams. So they are quite light mm-hmm. for the size. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for those shooters who aren't really interested in an ultralight bag, I do also do like I call it a standard fill, which is just the standard polymer bead um, that gets you at about a kilo. So they're the two varieties. Um, I've tried to stay making something that I can, that people can use for um, the application of hunting. Whereas, you know, I've tried to stay out of apparel and stuff like that. Mm. I'd rather just make bits and pieces um, that people can use for, for hunting. I did notice on your Instagram there, though, you did have some um, pretty cool-looking hats, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, the boys talked me into doing a run of hats, so um, I have done a run of hats. They have come out quite well, actually. Um, I'm always wearing one. Mm-hmm. Not now, obviously, but um, I, was, I was finding, even for my shaped head, a lot of hats didn't fit. And once again, um, I got these, the trucker's caps made and... Everyone with big heads brought one, hmm. so it was it was good. So essentially, then, um, if someone's looking for a um, dedicated rest that they could use for shooting uh, in the backcountry, something that's not going to um, carry with it, a, you know, a weight, a significant weight penalty, um, one of the the lightweight bags would be the way to go. By the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. So we the light weight bags that we've made have been for that um, specific reason um 250 grams is a lot less than one kilo obviously mm-hmm. and one of the things that we also do that i haven't seen yet is we make them in blaze orange so mm-hmm. i'm sure there's a lot of people like myself who have left them behind when they're out in the back country um and it's not as easy as just driving back to go and get it most of the time so yeah 
being that blaze orange instead of a camo color is a is a, is easier to find, I guess you could say. Once you set up, if you've taken the shot and uh, the adrenaline's all high and use the fist pump and after you you get the result you want, it's it's pretty hard to leave them behind when they're bright orange. Yeah, yeah, it is easy to um, to get up and leave stuff behind. Uh, I, I'm fairly sure I've left a few things. Uh, behind nothing. I've, left, I've left binoculars behind so oh, no i haven't done maybe that, i'll but... make a uh, a blaze orange pouch next yeah and look i don't want you to give away your your secret recipe um of the 11 herbs and spices but the the stuffing or the contents of that ultralight bag how did you get uh, that compromise between weight and um and stability so during the process um when we're in COVID. Obviously, I had a lot of time to try uh, different things, and I got onto a place in America that specialised in making ultralight film um, for for shooting bags. So I got in contact with them. Um, I had a heap of samples sent over, mm -hmm. um, and then it was literally um, I made ten different bags out of um, different fills, um, different sizes, and it literally was just the process of elimination trying to work out what i personally liked the most um i obviously shoot a lot of long range so i wanted to make sure that i was light enough without losing any accuracy and then the fill that i ended up going with worked out to be roughly that 250 grams so it worked out quite well to be honest yeah okay i have done things before like you know use the 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 top uh, part of your pack put my uh, my puffy jacket in that and, and try and use that before and it hasn't it's worked but it hasn't always been great um, you know particularly with uh, like puffy jackets and so forth they as you put pressure on them obviously the, the air starts to seep out and then they you know slowly move so they're not the most stable form so something like that I could see um, yeah it'd be, be great value and and uh, at 250 grams certainly um, is not going to uh, um, to hurt to carry it as well yeah you're right and i've got a customer he's brought three now for himself and his two sons um and he does a lot of pig culling in in new south wales and he's pretty much got his strapped to the to his rifle by the molly loop that's on the bag mm -hmm. and he's shooting 30 40 pigs week week in week out um and realistically it's it's the it's the um, reviews of people like him coming back to me saying what's what works and what doesn't, but he's putting it through the test and he's using it every day for that um, for that job and and he loves it. Mm. He can't get enough of it. So yep, yeah, great. Um, I see you've also got uh, some pouches for uh, some kestrels too. Are they still available? Yeah, yeah. So I did a run of um, of pouches for kestrels. Um, Reason being, obviously, Kestrels don't come with a cover. Um, mine's fairly scratched now, the screen, and obviously the screens aren't replaceable. Um, so once again, I made um, some Blaze Orange um, covers for them. Um, and yeah, I've, I've got a few left still. Once again, it's it's all in production still with those, I'm trying to finalise them, but um, I still have a, a few left over. Yeah, and obviously the, the thing with Kestrels too is... Um they do come in some earthy tones and so forth so if you did put them down they would quite easily blend in so having them attached to a blaze orange pouch would certainly be advantageous for from that point of view 
hundred percent. I've actually had mine hanging in a tree and once again left it there. Mm. And then it wasn't until I got back to the car that I realized uh, it was still hanging in the tree. So it's a $1,350 walk if, uh, <laughs> if you don't want to go back and get it. So once again, that's pretty much why I made that cover. I just wanted to make one for my own. So I didn't do that again. And then, um, yeah, just started making them. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And um, any more sort of thoughts about uh, future projects, um, uh, products that you're going to bring out? I've got a few ideas in the back of my mind that I do want to go with. Um, obviously, they're all Australian made. Um, a, a friend of ours, she actually used to do a lot of sewing for Harley Davidson in COVID. That they also took a hit. So mm. um, between me and her, we're brainstorming together of, of bits and pieces that we can do. But it's the same again. It's always like we want to try and do something that no one else is doing. Obviously, there's a lot of room in the market for for any kind of um, product that you want to put out there, but you still want to try and uh, and be a bit different to everyone else. So, yeah, so we will try and do a few things this year. Um, can't really say too much just yet, but we do need to do quite a few prototypes and give them the, uh, give them the run to make sure that they'll stand up to time and then we'll, we'll slowly release it from there. Yeah, okay. So if people want to, uh, first of all, have a look at, at what you've got on offer, um, where do they go? And then secondly, what's the best way to contact you to order something or purchase? At the, at the moment, it's just all straight through Instagram. I've found that obviously the easiest at the moment. Um, we will be doing a, a website of, at some stage. Mm -hmm. So our Instagram is Alpine Accuracy. Yep. Um, pretty easy. Um, and we will, uh, yeah, there's only one. So shouldn't be too many profiles to scroll through before you find us. Yeah, all right. And um, so people just reach out to you via Messenger and... Um... Yeah, yeah. So if um, if anyone just jumps on there, they send through a DM pretty quick at replying. Um, and then same again, pretty quick again, orders out. We can usually do them the next day. Hmm. Um, we've, got, we've got stock in. So if there's stock there, it will literally be bank transfer and then um, send me a receipt and then I'll flick it in the mail pretty much the next day. Yeah, great. All right, and um, obviously I see on the on the pictures uh, Tatonka pack. Yep, yep. So Tatonka came about. I was researching, um, actually at the time, just researching uh, packs in general, mm -hmm. and then I saw uh, Tatonka in New Zealand had come out with this uh, split frame pack, where you put a modular pack on the back of a, a frame, yep. and the other hunting I do throughout the year, because I don't stop, I hunt all year round, is mostly meat hunting mm -hmm. in terrain, uh, thicker terrain, not steep terrain, but just thicker terrain. So I thought that makes sense for me to buy that and use the the bigger pack when I go for high country and just use the back pack, the, uh, the frame bit, uh, for meat recovery. Yep. And... I have yet to give it a run on meat recovery, so we'll see how we go. But mm -hmm. I liked the idea, and I think I'll stick with that idea. Yeah. It might be a touch heavier than other packs. Uh, I don't – you probably noticed I don't mind paying more in weight for something that is more comfortable or more suited for what I'm going to be doing. I don't yeah. want to have to compromise uh, a pack 
you know, by 500 grams if it's not going to do what I want it to do. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have it and carry the extra 500 grams. Yep, yep. I, I, I will come back around to the weight because uh, that was of particular interest to me as well. But um, I don't know whether you've seen him, Thane Young, Rogi Productions on YouTube. I don't... That much attention though. Yeah, he he's a, a brand ambassador for Tatonka. Uh, he's over on the North Island in New Zealand, and he will hike into an area, um, snipes a deer opposite ridge, then he pulls the pack off and just basically has the frame and a couple of essentials, and boosts it over, grabs. The oh deer, yes, I have seen that clip. Yep. Yeah, butchers it up and then throws it on the frame and carries it back over, and then yep. yeah, packs out. So. Yeah, he, he sort of got that system down packed and he was he was part of the development and design of, of the system as well. Yeah, I think I, that's one of the clips that made me alternate from a regular pack, which is what I'd used for so many years prior, mm. um, to this version that allows me to do what he did. Yep. And, um, because, yeah, I hunt, as I said, I hunt all year round, so it's not just high country, it's going to do both. Mm. It's going to do the meat recovery trips as well. Mm-hmm. All right, and your boots. You mentioned you like a, a pair of of high supported boots. What are you running mm-hmm. there? I'm running Mindall boots. Okay. Uh, I don't know the model of these ones. They will be replaced. This is their, I think it's their tenth year, so it, they've started to perish. Uh, but they've given me ten years, mm-hmm. so that's pretty good. Yeah. Mm. So, but yes, they are the Mindall um, high boots. Uh, so they'll be replaced with other high boots. They are once again heavier, but they allow me a bit more security when I am carrying weight and when they're fully laced up and then I can treat them like regular boots, just not lacing them all the way up. Yep, yep. And the uh, your bedding system and, and I guess tent or shelter system. Yep. So I don't use any name brand um, tent uh it's actually something i got off amazon uh because it had everything i wanted Mm -hmm. uh it's got a sleeping compartment on one end and a large vestibule on the other Mm -hmm. now in the past i've learned when you pack somewhere and it's raining and you've got a wet pack you don't want to have to put that inside the tent with you just to have it protected Mm -hmm. so that's why i bought this um this larger Long, well, it's longer really uh, four season tent that allows me to put the pack still under the under the fly and the vestibule but it keeps it away from my waterproofed zone which is where I'm going to be sleeping yep. also this one allows me to uh, cook in it so I can you know set the jet boil up have the door open and you know when moisture goes outside yep. it allows me to sit on a chair I'll have to send you some images. It allows me to sit on a chair, sort of squatting down a little bit, but, you know, cook a meal without being exposed to the elements. Yep. So. Yeah. No, if it's uh, if it's raining or snowing, being able to to get away, get out of that, that weather and still function, like still cook meals or, you know, um, sit somewhere comfortably and have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, yeah, it uh, can go a long way. So once again, I probably pay a little bit more premium in that extra larger vestibule to sit under, 
and cook in. And even this trip, I stored some wood in it because I knew uh, snow was coming. Mm -hmm. So I had wood stacked around it, you know, uh, twin kindling inside because I, I can and I want to be comfortable. Mm. So, yeah. All right. And the, the bedding system? Uh, just uh, a Stony Creek 900 uh, sleeping bag that I've had for quite a few years. Uh, now that I store everything in dry bags, uh, I don't mind taking down uh, bedding in. Yep. Okay. And are you using a mat? Uh, yeah, a Maroka 30 mat, once again, from a few years ago. If you buy good then, it's usually a longer-lasting product. So. Yeah. Mm. Yep. yeah, there are definitely some products where the, the buy once, cry once principle comes into play and, and can um, be a long-term benefit in terms of financial investment. Yeah, it's good. If you take care of products, like a sleeping bag, you leave it airing when you're not using it and don't leave it stored and crushed up and same with the mat, they'll last a long period of time because mm. you're not using them every weekend of the year. You're using them as a backpack hunter. You might use them five times a year. Mm. All right, so those are the those are the, the three B's covered off. Um, now, in your in your Instagram post, you did mention your pack weight was about forty kilos. Yep, forty four kilos. Okay, does that include the rifle as well? Yep, everything everything in the pack. Yeah, like okay. the pack by itself. All right, so people would would. Listening to that, forty-four kilos. I mean, I, I the last trip I did, I I was um, thirty-seven, I think, with the the rifle and water, um, and that was uh, a lot of the reason was I, I didn't have my food dialed in properly. I was taking, I took too much food, um, but I was taking a few other bits of gear that I was testing. But I also had the podcast gear. So the, the mate that I went in with, we recorded a podcast while we were. In, sitting under a fly and the, the snow and the rain came down. But 44 kilos, uh, a lot of people would hear that and, and wince at it. And uh, I think my hips probably twinged a little bit just by hearing that figure too. What, what else is there for you that you're carrying or, or why, um, why so much? Okay, so there would have been heavy incidentals Apart from those, the one luxury I do carry is a small chair, mm -hmm. like a but you know, fold-up chair. Um, so that's added extra weight. But I did take this sort of trip. Uh, I did take a solar charger uh, for charging headlamps and phones because I was using that for my camera. So mm -hmm. I didn't carry an extra camera. It was going to get chewed up with videos. Mm -hmm. um, and apart from that, my stuff is all heavy stuff. It's it's not this new lightweight stuff. Now, I like to be comfortable, and I've said it a hundred times, but I, I'd, I'd rather carry the extra, compared to yourself, say seven kilos of gear, but when I get to camp, I'm comfortable. And I train for carrying. Like Before going, I get as fit as I can, mm -hmm. so I can get ready for that extra weight that I'll carry, but I'll be rewarded when I get to camp. Yep. So I don't know if there's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't take again. There's stuff that I 
might lighten a little. I did take uh, an ex I did take a day pack as well. You might have seen that in the video mm -hmm. because when I I don't want to uh, use my pack in pack for my day trips when I leave main camp. I like to have a separate pack, so I took my regular pack. Yeah. Um, but yeah, things like bone saws and gun cleaning equipment, they with rods, they all add up. Yeah. But I've seen too many issues when you don't have those as well. So, yep, yep. You know, clean your gun all over. You can run a rod through it and clean the mud out of it. Or you've got a big deer head and you don't realize that the thing weighs four kilos, but if you chop the skull off, it's only going to weigh two and a half kilos. And mm -hmm. yep. You don't want to be hiking that whole thing around. So, a bone saw is a small price mm -hmm. for those little things. Yep. Um, I do carry a Swiss Army knife and a Leatherman, so that's a double up. Mm -hmm. But I like to have one on the hip and then one in emergency. So yeah. I do a lot of, uh, I guess, sort of double ups, but it's a redundancy plan. I'm, I've always had issues with not having something two of in the past. So I do like to have, you know, little things like that I can do two of. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes. Uh, Two is one and one is none, um, depending on what it is. I listened to another podcast just recently or, or YouTube and um, the guy was going through his gear list and he he took two cables. He even went down to the, to the point of taking two charging cables for everything because he'd had issues before with, with one cable shorting out or not working and then not being able to charge his headlamp or, or whatever it was. So... Like I'll even take three headlamps now. So I'll have um, two main ones and then one little sort of super emergency one, which is just one of the little, you know, coin battery operated headlamps. And that, that goes in my sort of emergency kit. So as a last resort, I've at least got something. And more often than not, I've been away with blokes and had to loan them one of my headlamps because theirs is broken and they haven't had it. A second one that's always been a thing that i like to say to people when if when i've gone with other people if there's anything you need let me know i've probably got a spare mm. i've always liked to say that because it's pretty much true like you said you're carrying two headlamps you're ready to have a problem yourself or ready to fix a problem for somebody else yeah. uh, it's just it, i guess you do it enough you don't like to go what you would think would be unprepared which is certain critical items you only have one of or no batteries for it because you think you'll be able to charge it up or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I took a, um, a battery pack that has a solar panel attached to it as well on the last trip. Um, and as, you, as you're well aware, you know, the cold just, just destroys battery packs. Um, so after using the thing once, it, it then stopped working uh, and the, there wasn't enough uh, sunlight or, or for whatever reason that the solar charger wouldn't uh, wouldn't charge the, the, the pack up for me so um, I had another um, battery pack in there as well uh, which lasted a, a lot better um, so yeah things like that like as you say if uh, if there's something that you need a redundancy for then it's it's often worth carrying the extra weight to, to have that redundancy there that backup yeah um, as you said it, like the way i think about it is that's my sort of backpacking 
And if I wanted to do the ultra light rough backpacking, then I would have to accept there are some limitations as to what I would be able to do. Mm. Uh, what, uh, so I, there might be some nights that I have to go without using a headlamp because it's just, it's not something that I plan to have extra batteries or another headlamp or, you know, uh, I don't know. It's hard to, hard to think about, but most of the things are, are double. Like small things, are double. I yeah. take I take more more band aids than what I need. More, uh, I, don't know. I take a toothbrush and toothpaste in. Mm-hmm. Sure, if I'm doing ultralight, I'm not going to take those. But I want I want to be comfortable on the trip. Yep. So it yep. just those all things they add up, and it's it's surprising because when I looked at all the gear on the ground, it was like, oh, there's not much weight. You know, that's a kilo. It's not a kilo, but it does. When you put it all into one condensed pack, it does add up. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, this trip I took a rain jacket, um, a a, a uh, warm weather like a cold weather jacket, and uh, like overalls. So I had when it snowed, like because I knew it was not going to be great weather. Mm-hmm. I just put those layers on, and I didn't get wet. There was no like Gore-Tex overalls, and that you don't get wet wearing those. Yeah, it cost me a couple of you know, like a couple, maybe two kilos in weight with the overalls and the jacket and the, and the compression size. It's it's not something you can really compress down those things. Mm. But for two days, it it snowed and it rained. I didn't have an issue. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's everyone's got a a level of discomfort that they're prepared to to um to meet and beyond that um you know that the, the the more comfort you have obviously the more weight you seem to have um so you people have got to come back down to where they're prepared to to sit at knowing that there might be a night that they're cold and wet and they're going to have to crawl into their sleeping bag cold and wet uh, to warm up or you know if a, a big rainstorm comes through they might just have to sit in the tent for that period of time or, or try and seek shelter somewhere or yeah that's that's i guess this is sort of part of the reason why i'm talking to uh, to people such as yourself to to give people an understanding of of the options that are out there and um what what sacrifices they might be prepared to make and and lessons that they can learn along the way yeah so my level of discomfort and the sacrifice is the heavy 20k walk in mm-hmm. and a little bit lighter 20k walk back out mm. which is probably equivalent for me this year i think it was like four hours four and a half hours so i still had good pace but I, it was a heavy pack mm-hmm. and i accepted the fact this is the price i'll pay yeah and i still ended up happy and went to work the next day so. yeah and the, the chair you're talking about too, what sort of yep. chair have you got? Uh, it's, it's hard to explain. It might be 30 centimetres by 10 centimetres uh, when it's packed up. It's just one of those low ones. It's about 15 centimetres off the ground, Yeah. Um, pole one. And I use it inside the tent, uh, in the vestibule in the tent, yep. and I use it when I'm glassing. Yeah. Yep. So but it's my... As I said, my little luxury item to stop me having to sit on wet ground or find a log or a rock to sit on. Yeah, so. yeah. I have seen quite a few people 
uh, carrying those and um, everybody that that's got one seems to love it and raves about it um, yeah. and I've, I've looked at them a few times I've, I've been tempted um, but yeah it's it's you know another best part of a kilo that you've got to it carry is, as it, well so it is a kilo so you weigh up and if if I was only going for a short time if it was a two-day thing I wouldn't take the chair okay but if you were there for more than five days Finding a rock that's comfortable all the time or a log that's comfortable, it's just so much easier. And as I said, it's inside. I can use it inside the tent, like yeah. the, the cover. So if it was bigger, then I wouldn't take it. Yep. But it's small enough to use inside the little tent. Mm. Yep. You've, you've put that back on my, um, my possibles list. There's always a place to strap it. <laughs> yeah. Now coming back to um, to this trip and one of the comments um, that you made on it was that this was sort of the first trip after a uh, a long period away because of an injury. Yep. So can we go back to to talking about this injury and um, how that that affected you and how it sort of removed you from the, the from the scene and then the the road to recovery for you until you got to the point where you were confident again to, to shoulder a 40 plus kilo pack. So I had a back injury, uh, for 20, say 26 years ago mm -hmm. and they fused my vertebrae and for a long period of time, uh, instead of getting fit, I used medication to deal with the pain and the pain of carrying a pack. Mm -hmm. So. I would, you know, if I didn't have medication, I wouldn't have been able to do it, but I, I would have struggled to do it any time. Um, then in 2018, um, the injury flared up again, so much so that the medication, I was on some serious, uh, you know, morphine patches, yep. put it that way, dissolve under your tongue stuff. And then... It flared up so much that, that that medication wasn't even working anymore and we had to try a different procedure. So they tried a, a neurostimulator in my back to uh, on the pain mm -hmm. after lots of testing prior and they found that I was suffering from chronic pain mm -hmm. as well as having the injury. Most of the pain was an actual, the brain telling me I had pain, not really having pain. Okay. So then... The uh, neurostimulator uh, told the brain that there was no pain to feel. Yep. Um, so that happened in 2019. Um, so I had a year and a half off work with that issue and then the recovery. And I returned to work and I, I didn't stop hunting. Uh, there was a period there during the recovery. I was actually in the bush for five months living in the bush for five months to, you know, mental health, dealing with everything that was going on. Uh, you know, you're not earning an income, which is difficult to do. Mm. So yeah, that, that living in the bush helped, helped me a lot then. And uh, then I went back to work and I got really stuck into my fitness because I realized I don't have medication to cover up anything anymore. Yep. So you know, the strongest thing I take now is a Panadol, maybe a Nurofen, you know, 
a worst case headache. Mm -hmm. So I don't do any of the medication that I had in the past. And I got really into looking after uh, my physical health so that I can go back to this, uh, this sort of pack hunting. Okay. So pack hunting behind the gates, I probably haven't done in say almost 20 years. Mm. Pack hunting in the same area or pack hunting when the gates are open, uh, probably stopped that seven years ago. Okay. So this was a, this was a return to that where I can go pack hunting and not have to worry. There's some tracks there that I would love to revisit that I did do um, on medication with back problems. Um, and I'll have to do that on another trip. Nothing, not another thing to look forward to. Yep. Yep. And, um, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this trip because it, it broke the ice because I was nervous. Mm. It's so long. Um, Seven years is a, is a long time to not put on a backpack and go on for a backpack hunt. Mm. I know it doesn't sound like, I know it sounds like a long period of time, but it, it wasn't a long period of time between hunting because I hunt all year round. Yep. But yeah, when I, uh, when one of the things that got me thinking, hey, I can do this was I, um, I was carrying out Samba and I thought, you know what, I, if I can do this, I can carry two back legs out, two front legs. If I can carry a, a three-quarter grown deer out, mm. you know, dressed, I can carry a pack. Why aren't I carrying a pack and going back to what I used to do? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was. Mm. Then seeing other people who were in a less healthy physical state than myself and they were doing it, I thought, you know, I've got to go back and visit some of these spots that I used to go to. So hunting was a, a big motivator for you to increase your fitness and, and overcome that uh, that injury and the pain? Yeah, yeah, because once the pain had gone, um, I could enjoy everything, funnily enough, more than I thought I could have. I thought I was enjoying it when I was in pain, but when you take pain away and chronic pain away, you enjoy life in general so much more yeah. you're so much more active uh you talk differently you you react differently to situations you're not doped up and you're not um you know cooped up from pain yeah so yeah mm. yeah Good. chronic back and nerve pain is just something you don't want to have and you don't wish it upon anyone it just unfortunately happens to a lot of people yeah yeah I um, what I'm doing now, my, my business is working with uh, disabled people with disabilities, and um, some of those people are um, suffering chronic pain as well. Um, so I see, you know, your, your, your story sort of resonates with me because I, I see my own clients, um, the struggles that they're going through, and how it affects them and takes its toll on them every day, you know. From the minute you open your eyes, you're in pain until the minute you can you can get yourself to sleep. Yep, yep. And then it's a it's a vicious cycle. And even now, my brain recognizes certain movements, and my muscles will tense, mm -hmm. expecting pain. And we're talking of four years of not 
feeling that pain anymore, yeah. but my brain and my muscles still expect the pain when I do a certain movement, even though there is nothing. Yeah. It's just because so it's become so engrossed in the muscle movement, the muscle memory. It's it's unfortunate, but that's how much pain, nerve or nerve pain you get in your back. It's mm. just it's devastating. Yeah, because debilitating. That, because that became a learned behaviour for your body. Mm. Um, so it was it was almost a muscle memory um, that when that when yeah. that combination occurred, you were going to be in pain, and yeah, it's, yeah. you you retraining yourself to stop that. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah. And I did a lot of um, a lot of tests, and when I was going through uh, whether I was uh, eligible for this uh, chronic pain device, and that's that's the sort of thing they found is that my body was expecting pain. That's why they. You know, they went down this path of chronic pain and they, they solved it. But I was a shadow of a person then. I was a grey, because I was on so much medication, I was grey. Just It was such a negative. When I look back at pictures now, I feel sorry for myself. Mm. You, you should never, I should never have been on that much medication and been in that much pain. They should have come across this, uh, this fix sooner. Mm. Mm. And even though you were still hunting during that time, the, the the backpack hunting or the the inability to do that, because we we spoke before we started recording about the the benefits of, of mental health um, from this style of, of hunting, and that that disconnection and that that connection with nature and and like you're saying, you know, it's not just about the, the the gun and shooting shooting a deer. It's it's being out there in that environment and being around the, all the other noises and activity in the bush, what sort of toll did that take on your mental health or or how have you seen your mental health improve now that you've been able to re-engage in the backpack hunting? Uh, mental health definitely improved because it's, a lot of it is, um, a lot of it's a mental game, the, the backpack hunting and the whole reason I'll say we as backpack hunters go backpack hunting is the adventure of it. Mm -hmm. It's not, as you say, the shooting, the, the part of it is the hunt, but more part of it is the whole adventure of the hunt, whether it's hiking in there and hiking out to say to yourself, you walk that far with a pack on, or you walk that far off the road. Mm -hmm. As an example, even that's an adventure. Um, you know, we got off the track here and we've walked four K's off track to this spot. So that, that's part of the adventure. Mm. So the mental health has been a, even more than I thought I was good before I went on the hunt and now I'm even better because I've experienced challenges to myself and conquered them. Yep. So it's always that just that little bit better. And I'm sure future backpack hunts will be the same. There's certain places I want to go or certain, uh, certain things I want to do. Um, and I'll do those things. May not be the next trip, but I'll try. And if I don't do it the next trip, I'll do it the trip after. I'll keep trying because that's the challenge mm -hmm. is to have a, an adventure that you remember every single time. Yep. So definitely mental health is is changed by backpack hunting. Funnily enough, you can hunt all the time in fridge country, but nothing stimulates the brain to feel good about itself than backpack hunting. Yep, yep. No, hundred percent agree with you there, mate. You you really uh, hit the nail on the head. Then that that 
the the word the word you used was adventure. It's not just it's not just about going out and shooting a deer. It's about having an adventure, and uh, however that looks for for people. And I know personally, <clears throat> I used to used to work in a in a job years ago that um, uh, was significantly stressful um, because of the the content of the job. And when I found myself out. I, I would plan to go away at least twice a year to try and do a backpack hunt. And every time I did, I came back feeling significantly better because of that. Yeah, adventure is an oversimplification of it, but essentially that's what it is, you know. It was it was meeting the challenges and overcoming them and, and you know, doing doing things that you wanted to do because you wanted to do it, not because... You had to do it or anything like that and and it was hard and but you wanted to do it you know walking up that that mountain in in you know fighting your way through blackberries and and dogwood and all of that sort of thing you know that's not not an enjoyable experience at the time but when you got to the top man you felt good about it it was definitely definitely you can say it's it's more adventure than it is thrill of uh, of the hunt mm of the time that I was backpacking away recently, only maybe two days were spent seriously dedicated to hunting. The other days were spent dedicated to having my adventure. You know, I went to places that I'd seen deer years ago, taken photo of. I went back to those places. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't see deer there, but I, I went back. I walked back down tracks that I remember being horrible. And this time, because I was so much more prepared and, and mentally physically healthier they were nothing they were they were not these uh, torturous heartbreak heart attack hills they were not anymore they were easily walked by a person carrying a gun and a day pack you know and not struggling not not sweating out so yeah that's i went to see those places again Mm. and just proved to myself that and to myself only that i've changed yeah i've mentally and physically changed from that person that did go into those places seven plus years ago and now i'm not that person yep yep i was going to make that that very comment that you did just then that that you it was kind of more about a lot of it was about proving to yourself uh that that the past is is behind and and you're in a much better place now by the sounds of it definitely definitely because we, we shouldn't really need to prove ourselves to anyone else um especially with the days of social media and we talked about this earlier everyone seems to be outdoing the next person or proving that they can do something Mm. well really just need to prove that to yourself Mm. and that's what i liked about this trip not because it was a solo one by myself but it was uh, i can do it and if i want to do it i will do it so if I want to go and visit, because there were some scenic things that I wanted to see that I've always walked past because I've been so caught up in the hunt. Yep. So I went to see some old, um, I walked further than I should have walked, but I went and saw some scenic, uh, some of those old cattlemen's huts. Yep. Because I'm there and I don't have to do anything more for anybody else. This is about, it's a trip for me. Mm. I don't need to. Um, justify why I did something except to me. 
Yeah. So if I want to sleep in, which I didn't do, but if I wanted to sleep in, I can sleep in. Yep. It's no one, no one saying, oh, if you sleep in, you're not going to shoot any deer. But I don't need to shoot the deer to have the adventure. Mm. I'm here with a gun and I'm going to have an adventure. Mm. Mm. Yep. I heard a quote the other day that our fear of failure is not that we will fail, but it's how people will judge us after we fail. It's very true. Mm. And there's because everything is so instant, um, uh, with social media and with just contact with people in general, that's how we start to perceive people seeing us as failures. If we keep failing, well, then they're not seeing us as successful, they're seeing us as failures. Mm. And you should be thinking to yourself, well, that's one way I tried again and I didn't succeed, so I will try again yep yep so and, you should be and that, looked at as courageous and battling and you know someone who's got determination not as a failure yeah yeah and and like we spoke about before the recording that the social media the the success what we deem to be successful is judged by us and not because we're putting a picture on social media holding a, a a big stag or you know that sort of result that 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 has come to be expected from people that the success was the fact that you did walk in there pain free and you know went further than than you expected uh, and were able to to do that and and walk out after having seen and achieved the things you wanted to see yeah which is exactly the reason you go i think on these things as I said, we keep saying adventure, but it's also the disconnect mm. from daily life to that when you come back from being disconnected, that you reconnect and you reconnect with vigor, reconnect with some sort of internal energy that says, you know, I'm, I'm keen to get back, not to work maybe, but, you know, I'm keen to get back to family. I'm keen to do a dad thing now mm -hmm. because it, it gets monotonous. Those, those daily grind, daily jobs, when you disconnect and then you come back to reconnect, you, you are refreshed. Mm. Yep. Yeah. And I, I always seem that there's been very few trips where I've been on the drive back. Obviously, you know, I've got a usually a two-day drive to get back home. On that trip back, I am already thinking about the next trip and what I'm going to do differently and gear that I'm going to change or, you know, there's always that pre-planning then straight away for me and so then I, I recognize that this has been this has been well and truly worthwhile yeah it re it, what is it it reinvigorates the brain for more adventure for more you know it re it inspires it to mm. to think about what you can do next time mm. and mm. planning the next trip is is just as much fun really spread out over say six months but it is just as much fun as the trip going mm. yep so, Chris, I'm, I'm mindful of your time. Uh, I forgot about uh, that you guys are on daylight savings down there, so there's a, there's an hour difference for us, so I, I recognise that it's right. getting on at night for you. Um, now, you, you mentioned it before, the Australian Six. You've, you've achieved that. Um, you achieved it many years ago. Yeah. What was... Uh, one of the, funnily enough, one of the places I went to that I needed to go back to in my head, I needed to go back to um, was the place I shot uh, my first uh, samba whilst backpacking mm -hmm. with my son. 
So I went back to that spot. It's a bit hard to to locate the exact spot after nearly 20 years or, yeah, probably 20 years, but I did get back to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are the what are the future plans then? If if you've achieved that, are you going to go back around the clock and and do it again, or are there other things in? Uh, mind? Unfortunately, uh, I am Samba dedicated. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to to switch off from uh, the Samba, and I do purposely chase fellow in April and May, uh, just to. Once again, like with everything, you need a break, but maybe not from the hunting bit, but a break from a particular species. So April and May, I chase fallow. I would maybe chase hog deer again, but I have no no urge, desire to to chase the other species. I'm happy for everyone else to thoroughly enjoy them, mm-hmm. um, but I've I've done hard yards and I'm happy. To sit on my laurels with the six species, but just concentrate on enjoying the adventure myself with Samba and backpack hunting. Yeah. Okay. Any other Australian species that you you haven't hunted yet that you want to, for example, buffalo or? Uh, hunted buffalo. I would like to go back and hunt camels. Funnily enough, mm-hmm. I would really, I really enjoyed that. They're a big animal. Um, just a difficult. For me, where I hunted them was difficult hunting. It was hot and it was shrubs and they're much taller than you and can see you from much further away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's easy to get misplaced in that sort of country. And I liked that at the time, that it was a challenge. Yeah. They they really throw it out there. You can hunt them over water holes or driven by aeroplanes or whatever, but that's not how I did it and mm-hmm. that's not how I would do it in future. Mm-hmm. Yep. Did you get to eat the camel? Uh, yes, we ate camel. It was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. saw um, somebody advertising. There was a, a one of the other Australian podcasters. Uh, I think it's um, might be hunting and beyond. But uh, please don't don't get angry at me if it's if I got that wrong. But they they uh, recently interviewed someone who hunted camel, and they have likened it to uh, wagyu. Uh, well, it's pretty fatty. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Well, and. Overseas, have you hunted overseas? Only Northern Europe, um, in Sweden. Uh, moose, beaver, I didn't get to shoot uh, all of the things that I wanted to shoot, so maybe I'll go back there. I I only really have a drive for caribou mm-hmm. in you know Canada, Northwest Territories, whatever it would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, pretty much the only species that I've got that I would like to Go and hunt. Did you, say, uh, did you say you hunted beaver? Yeah, in, in Sweden. Uh, half a dozen. Beaver. It's half a dozen good jokes I could throw out there, but I'll leave that Plenty one. Plenty of good jokes. <laughs> Plenty of good jokes. But yeah, you. Uh, you uh, my brother uh, shot one uh, in the snow, which was a that was a tough hunt for him. Mm-hmm. I went by canoe okay. uh, on open water, which is difficult to hit him in the head. You can't hit them anywhere else because they dive and then you never see them again. But my brother had a true adventure hunt where he, he travelled by skiing mobile and then skis to frozen lake and had to sit there and freezing until they come out. Mm. That, that was one of those adventure hunts. Yeah, right. Wow. Okay. Um, 
So never been to New Zealand? Any any thoughts on going to New Zealand? If I was going to New Zealand, I'd probably uh, look at the whitetail on Stewart Island. That's okay. something that would interest me. Yeah. That, that sort of interesting. So that to me would be the interesting bit, you know, dropped off by a plane and then the plane has to come back and pick you up. You have to wait, survive there for seven days and hunt. And I like that bit. Um, I don't have an overall interest in tar and chamois. Um, nothing against people who do. That's why we have such a wide variety of interests. But those people, they like to climb the mountains and, and shoot them that way. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you you might have already mentioned this before when you said caribou, but a, a dream hunt for you. What would be what would be your dream hunt and, and animal? Yeah, that would probably be it, the caribou. Mm. Uh, that would be a dream hunt because once again, you're you're backpacking. You could say certain animals in Africa, but there's no backpacking and there's no wilderness to that. In a sense, I guess not having done it, but I can't. You know, if you're staying in a lodge, I don't see the same connection with being on the adventure than, um, mm. and once again, you know, flying in and dropping you off and, you know, have to start hunting the next day. You can't hunt the same day and so on. I, I like that, yep. you know, we walking with a pack covered by flies and bugs and, you know, that's, that's the adventure part of it. Yeah, I've seen some videos from people hunting up there and there's, mosquitoes just like this black mist around them that that to me sounds like the adventure hunt that i'd be interested rather than ticking the box and shooting something it's you know the yeah. story that you come that comes with it yeah yeah that's right yep no i think um i think africa is sort of one of those for me anyway it's kind of a later in life type hunt when maybe my uh my body doesn't allow me to do uh, the backpacking and, and backcountry style hunts because it seems to be, uh, and this is not a criticism at all, but uh, it just seems to be, yeah, you're, you're staying in in a hotel style accommodation, you know, in a, in a lodge um, and then getting driven around and you drive around until you sort of find a, a species or until the trackers tell you that they've, they've located one and they lead you to it and then, you know, you, you make your choice to shoot or not, but uh, I, I have a couple of mates that have done Africa um, a number of times and, and they all come back raving about it and, and wanting to go back and do it again. So it's um, yeah. it's definitely an interest and, and probably addictive as well. But yeah, I'll, I'll leave that one until later in life personally. And you can get someone to carry the pack for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, or you can, you yeah. can get them to carry a rifle for you. You don't have to carry anything. And I think that's why we, well, you and I, and probably many of the listeners, enjoy the backpack hunting is because of the, the the wilderness, the the aspect of carrying your your life on your back mm. for five plus days. Mm. It just it changes the mind. It's another responsibility that you've got to take care of, and and it's it's wilderness. Like you can hunt Victoria solo, unguided, public land, got yourself a game license and the right rifle, you can go for a hunt. Mm. And you can go for pretty much as long as you like, as long as you've got food, yep. if you wanted to. Yep. If you've got enough food in there, you could go for a month mm. if you wanted to. Mm. Yep. Yeah. No, that was something we mentioned before too, wasn't it? The, the advantage of Victoria and that we don't have to buy tags, we don't have to make bookings. Um, you know, you can... You can rock up at at the gates, park your car, and and start hunting. And uh, um, 
yeah, we're certainly fortunate in that regard. I know, I know other countries have got uh, other advantages as well. Um, but yeah, that's certainly one thing about Australia that we um, we need to appreciate what we've what we've actually got there as well. Yeah, I don't think see the other animals. You know, many of the other animals you can hunt in Australia, you don't get the access to hunt them unguided, let alone on public land. There's very little of that in other states. And buffalo, camel, it's almost impossible. Mm. So yeah, well, in Queensland, we have no public land hunting uh, mm. unless you're doing it under. Um, you know, under specific license to, to cull animals in, in the national parks or whatever, but all the hunting I do up here has to be on, on private property, so it has to be with permission, and obviously then you, you know, you're on someone's farm, so um, that comes with other other criteria that you've got to meet too, but um, yeah, down in, in Victoria, you know, that the, the attraction is to just, as we said, you, you know, you just throw your backpack on and start walking, and you can Go and get lost for as long as you like, and no government saying you can only go here, you can only go there. They only do that for two months of the year, I think it is, from December fifteenth to February fifteenth. The rest of the time, you you're on your own. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Chris. Look again, really appreciate um, your time and um, and the conversation, and uh, and yeah. No worries. Give, not, giving a, the, not a problem at all. Giving us everything you've given tonight. That's um, like I said. I uh, I read many of your articles over the years, and um, uh, and always knew they were going to be uh, going to be good articles when I or good magazines when I opened the, the pages and saw Chris Boone's name in the in the index. So appreciate all that all that you've contributed over the years as well to the to the hunting sector. No problem at all, Tobias. I'm happy to chat anytime yeah so. all right I'll, I'll we'll definitely take you up on that <laughs> get get some direction to some honey holes <laughs> yeah well there's plenty out there yeah you just got to be you know you're going are you going to be rewarded for your efforts mm. that's the thing you put yourself in the extra five k's may not be successful that time but you keep doing that extra five you'll you'll find what you need yeah yep. Great stuff. hey thank you for listening in if you'd like to contact me for a chat, pass on any feedback, or have some ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to me on Instagram at Australian underscore hunting underscore backcountry or email australian.hunting.backcountry at outlook.com.au. For now though, please look after yourselves and your mates.